0: Greetings from the Humongous. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off. Whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and
1: cats living together.
0: This is to the job! I'll have what
1: she's having. Hey, Doctor Joe, no time for love. Hey, hey Sal, how can we get the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, rabastic pieces of amphibian shit. Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas huh, look like? That? I don't know. They were. Jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. There's a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his
0: to the morgue. That's the Chicago. Steve, The Final Countdown. That's right. We are, uh, <laughs> we are back for the top five of our choices for the best film of the
1: 1980s. Again, a tough, tough job. Yeah, hi- highly subjective. We make no claims objectivity in this list. Absolutely. We do not try to be subjective at all. Or wait a second. We don't try to be
0: objective at all. Ah, Correct. Fuck. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, any uh, any any impressions? Any feedback between the episodes, Steve? How did you feel about our our bottom five choices?
1: I thought they were all pretty solid. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I thought it uh, went pretty good to me. I don't. Know. You have any regrets, Andre?
0: I think our top five choices will probably be a little bit more conventional. I'm going to guess there're going to be fewer surprises in this one. But yeah, I mean
1: it's one of those things even though uh you know it's, as we said we're uh it's our own personal favorites. It's like how about you but you still feel kind of the pressure of like, you know, for some invisible audience, you don't want to be like, "Wait a minute, they picked that? That's crazy." <laughs> but these are my uh I feel pretty good about my list, so
0: Good, good. I'm glad you feel good about it. I feel good about my list as well, Steve. So.
1: Well, you should kick it off. I, I did a, the most recent one we did at the end of the last episode was The Princess Bride, my number six pick. So why don't you start us off, Andre? What is your pick for the fifth best movie of the 1980s?
0: My number five best film of the 1980s is uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, Steve. A gigantic, sprawling gangster epic that um, came out in 1984 uh, to a gigantic thud at the bu- box office. Uh, uh-huh. The movie was not very successful. And it's got a weird legacy, I have to say. And, and I think the problem was that there was so much drama involved with a film coming out. There was this weird combination of expectations and a kind of a disastrous post-production process, all kinds of feuds with all kinds of producers and money people, um, the, the film really, really suffered enormously to the point that when the film did come out in 1984 in its final, like two and a half hour format, um, a film critic very famously said that it was literally the worst film of 1984. Um, But when eventually a three and a half hour version of the film was released, that same critic called it one of the best films of the 1980s. So um, a huge difference between different cuts of Once Upon a Time in America, but that film should be seen in its longest version possible. There is a Somewhere out there, there's probably a six-hour cut of the film. Uh, There was talk initially of it being released as a two-parter, similar to the Godfather films. Uh, And um, none of that came to fruition. The money people refused, and Leone had to cut this thing down to two and a half hours upon release. It was a complete disaster. The movie made zero sense in that shortened version and uh, eventually a three-hour, 49-minute cut was released. The film is a classic gangster movie with kind of a modern perspective. Ironically, this famous Italian director makes a movie about gangsters who happen to be not Italian gangsters for <laughs> once. Robert De Niro again, the Robert hero De Niro again, the 80s, yeah. uh, stars as Noodles, one of the main characters. Uh, James Wood stars as his friend Max. Uh, There's all kinds of great actors in it, including Joe Pesci, uh, Elizabeth McGovern, Jennifer Connelly in her screen debut as a child, essentially. Tuesday Weld, Burt Young, Danny Aiello, William Forsythe. It's a great cast. And uh, the movie is indeed epic. It is truly an American gangster story that, in my opinion, stands pretty well side by side with A Godfather, except for that pesky multiple versions of the film where even the best version you could see, again, three hours, 49 minutes, is still not quite good enough to tell this story, in my opinion. But to me, that movie is absolutely fantastic. And if people have not seen it, it it's a masterpiece along the side with uh, Sergio Leone's other masterpieces that were all done in the 60s. The 70s were not good to Leone, but uh, he did manage to bring in this film uh, as his final testament as it were, and uh, it holds up really great. That's it. That's all I got on Once Upon a Time in America.
1: Have you seen that movie? I I actually haven't. I'm well aware of it. It's one of those lingering holes in my De Niro filmography. That uh, you know, I actually have a great book on like all the rules of De Niro, and I always remember seeing that one. And uh, for various reasons, I've never. I have never caught it. But now with your recommendation, that's even added incentive to, uh, go check that one out.
0: I think Amazon is streaming it actually. And, uh, it's really worth seeing. Again, I just, it, it's one of those films that seems almost like, there's like a lost masterpiece quality to it. Uh, and, and by lost, I mean, it's just fell through the cracks. It was completely shut out of the Academy Awards. Um, even the great Ennio Morricone, who is you know highly regarded, just passed away last year and touted as one of the greatest film composers of all, um, did one of his best scores to that film. And it was not nominated. It 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 was just a shame what actually happened on the release of the movie. And it's kind of a cautionary tale of what can happen when producers clash with directors. But uh, it's a movie that deserves to be seen and and should be kind of reexamined. It's it's definitely one of the best films of the eighties.
1: Well, an excellent choice. Um, so my fifth film, uh, my fifth favorite film of the eighties, is a movie that uh, got. Plenty of acclaim, not under anybody's radar at all, and it is 1984's "Amadeus." Uh, Amadeus. Amadeus. Uh, Great song. On,
0: came was that from that movie? <laughs> Rock me, Amadeus.
1: I, you know, I. The short answer is no. <laughs> no, no is the short answer. Uh, yeah, uh, the Amadeus is. Uh, It's a favorite movie of mine. I mean, I know it's an obvious choice, but it's all, you know, as we kind of hinted at last episode, it is the only Best Picture winner that I found worthy of Best Picture of the 80s. Uh, All the other winners were not, I thought, something better should have won. And the other thing about Amadeus is, um, you know, there's some historical inaccuracies with it, I'm sure. You know, I don't really want to get into that. But Amadeus is, it's one of the first and maybe my favorite example of a type of film that I, I love, which is where you have a character who all that character wants is to be really good at something. Like that's all they desire, and they work really hard at it. And then along comes another character who doesn't seem to have to work that hard at it, and is just naturally either as good or better than the first character. And it kind of drives the uh, the first guy crazy. Because they can recognize, like they have taste, and they can recognize, like, you know, this other guy, he's doing all the stuff I want to do, and yet he's not tortured by it. He's not, you know, just busting his ass every day. And you know, and Amadeus obviously, uh, Salieri is the uh, the tortured guy, and uh Mozart is the guy who it comes naturally to him. And right. I just, I don't know what it is, Andre. I just love that dynamic. I think it's an excellent. Uh, dynamic that plays out in movies. And I want to give our uh, listeners two other great examples of this type of movie. Are uh, There's a movie called Rush about race car driving. Right. Uh, which might be my vote for Ron Howard's best movie. I love uh, Rush. Yeah, it's a little like, I mean, for a movie with big stars, Chris Hemsworth is in it. I feel like it's a little under the radar. Like it kind of got eclipsed by Ford versus Ferrari in recent years. and um, And I do like, Ford v. Ferrari, but Rush is great. It's the exact same dynamic, and, right. uh, and also uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward uh, Robert Ford, another prime example of this dynamic where you have a character really looking up to another one and how that can lead to tragic results.
0: Yeah, well, they you know that's one of my favorite films uh and uh yeah, you're totally right. It's funny. I I never noticed that sort of dynamic, the Amadeus dynamic, but but uh, that's that that's, that's a great point. Uh, that 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 engine that drives Amadeus is and those other films as well. It's uh it's it's very interesting, right? It it like what it nominally does is it puts your Antagonist into the protagonist seat, right? The person you identify in those movies is never. Mozart, or Jesse James, uh, or even uh, with James Hunt, right in in Rush. It, it's yeah. always the guy who has to work for it, uh, even though sometimes it could lead to a terrible end. Uh, but man, I, I love Amadeus. I, I it was almost on my list, Steve, uh, and it's just a fantastic film. Beautiful. It's beautifully acted it's very modern. It's not a stodgy old kind of like old timey movies. A lot of that, you know, there's always this, this thing with period pieces, uh, where it could get a little mm, overbearing, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, and Amadeus never falls into that trap, right? It's just friggin' solid. It clips along beautifully. It's funny when it needs to be funny and tragic when it needs to be tragic. And, uh, and, you know, talk about the performances of that film. I mean, the acting is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and it's... Uh, I mean, F. Murray Abraham was, uh, you know, I I know he had had some roles here and there, but that's certainly far and away the biggest role he had. Uh, he won Best Actor for it, and then... uh you know, never really had a role that prominent again. In some ways, that that was, <laughs> right. in terms of popularity, it was his high water mark. Right. But it's, he's been very open about how, like, winning that award, like, if nothing else, it kind of guaranteed he could keep working. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I love but, that guy. Yeah, how you were saying about how it's not stodgy. It's one of the things I love about Amadeus, and in some ways, it kind of just blows right past any arguments about historical accuracy, is because so much of that movie clearly. Is executed in a modern style. That then to complain about some of the historical inaccuracies seems almost beside the point. Because I mean, you can, especially too, because the framing device. You can argue that ninety percent of what you're seeing in the movie is from Sally point of view. Completely which subjective. Is completely right. subjective and unreliable.
0: Very, very, so, uh, very
1: good point. And it's such a rock and roll
0: movie. It's it takes such a rock and roll slant at Mozart that. I think, like, people who have not seen it and do end up seeing it are always surprised by that, that approach to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah. it, it approaches these characters in a very modern, kind of universal way. Uh, and it just plays great. I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes these things just work out magically, and Amadeus, to me, is definitely one of those films. It's, uh, like I said, it, it just squeaked out of the top ten for me. Maybe as, as high as number 11 or 12.
1: Well, we both agree. We like Amadeus. Well, Andre, what do you got at number four? There's a little controversy
0: here, Steve. I had a picture at number four that I love very much. And I even uh, kind of hinted that this film may be on my list uh, of the best films of the 80s. And then and then I replaced it with another film, Steve, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> that original film I had at number four was... Brian De Palma's Untouchables. Ah. Uh, I absolutely love the Untouchables. Of course, it's De Palma's version of the television show that dealt with the adventures of Elliot Ness and his brave band of crime busters uh, going up against the evil. Robert De Niro playing the evil Al Capone, and of course, the ultimate Chicago movie in many ways. Um, a fantastic film. And, and again, I don't want to overstate my love for the Untouchables. Uh, here again, David Mamet provides the brilliant script. Sean Connery got the Academy Award as best supporting actor. He's excellent as kind of a weathered Irish cop with a heavy Scottish accent. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes. And, um, Kevin Costner, um, plays Elliot Ness and is a wonderful leading man, really, really excellent in the film. And, um, it was his biggest role up to that point and he, he killed it. It was great. Uh, and then of course you got Robert De Niro playing Al Capone and here again, De Niro gained like 50 pounds. He's huge. um, And I don't mean just in terms of weight. His performance is huge. Uh, I don't know if Al Capone was anything like Robert De Niro is in this film. But uh, I hope he was. I mean, De Niro is amazing. Uh, And, again, it sounds like I'm talking about The Untouchables. But uh, what ended up happening, Steve, is uh, after our last episode, it occurred to me that I think, I think the films in the top five need to be more influential than the untouchables. It occurred to me in my own head that for me to put a list of the top five films of the entire decade of the eighties, these top five films need to have in some way, in one way or another, changed the landscape of cinema. Or entertainment overall. Now, that's a tall order. That is a tall order, I, yeah. It's a tall order. So I actually went back, reviewed every film made in the 1980s, Steve, and um, settled on Spinal Tap being the number four film on my list for the best film of the 1980s. a second comedy. I said there was only one uh-huh. last week. It's Spinal Tap, Steve. I have to give it to Spinal Tap because Spinal Tap, ultimately, that whole mockumentary approach, and we talked a little bit about it during our comedy episode, but uh, the mockumentary approach has been a game changer across the board, uh, both in film and especially on television. So the influence of Spinal Tap remains absolutely beyond comparison it is a far far more influential film than Brian De Palma's Untouchables and uh, therefore it went on my list as number 4 best film of the 80's Rob Reiner's this is Spinal Tap
1: that's a seems. worthy selection, yes. It's and as I,
0: exciting as I think this episode's going to get, unless we're in for some surprises. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, Spinal Tap, I love it, too. As anybody listen to our comedy episode knows, uh, Spinal Tap is a, yeah, it's a classic. Uh, I am maybe, in your mind, controversial, because I rate both Guffman and uh, Best in Show kind of on par with Spinal Tap, but... There's no losers in uh, those movies, Uh, whatever one's your favorite. They're all very funny, and they all remain funny on multiple, multiple viewings. I ended up
0: thinking a lot about this one. I really, like, I wanted to slot it somewhere, and I just couldn't bear to take any of my other films off the list. And uh, Untouchables ended up getting bumped. Had to bump the Untouchables.
1: Well, that's good. You did the time-honored list cheat where you... uh, Talk about a movie that's not actually on your list. So uh, yeah, bravo to you. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I had to do it. I had to do it because it hurts, Steve. I love The Untouchables. It's yeah. a,
0: it's such a Chicago movie. I love it more every time I watch it. It's supremely entertaining. I wanted to have De Palma on the list, honestly. Again, I just feel like De Palma was such a huge part of my my personal uh, 80s experience that uh, that's – you know that that I just needed to have one of his films, and I couldn't quite get myself to put Scarface on the list because, you know, Scarface is just all over the place. Yeah. It's I mean, we talked about it. It's not a great film, even though it's a hell of a movie. But I felt The Untouchables had really, really all the necessary pieces to uh, to. To be up there, you know, and, and I also like the way it tied in with the setting of Once Upon a Time in America. But uh, but ultimately, Spinal Tap, more important film, more influential film, that makes it a greater film.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought Brian De Palma into this one way or the other, because I will say, Andre, and looking back over our season-long 80s retrospective, I think maybe the biggest thing I personally got out of it was kind of a reappreciation of Brian De Palma. Uh, he was always a guy... I now think probably incorrectly i consider kind of lesser amongst uh, his peers you know uh between scorsese and coppola and spielberg and all those guys i ranked him lower and uh re-watching a bunch of the palma films in recent months um yeah I, he's great <laughs> i really uh, have a newfound appreciation of brian de palma so uh, go yeah, check awesome. out some brian de palma movies agreed um, agreed we got so,
0: we, we've accomplished that so what, what's
1: yeah. your number four my number four is uh, a movie from 1980. We've discussed this uh, on a previous episode, and that is The Shining. Uh, my vote for uh, these—it's my vote for the scariest movie of all time. I will say that. Uh, it's also a strong contender. It's like a dark horse candidate for the best Kubrick movie. Uh, I will say it's the most watchable Kubrick movie. That's the thing. Like there are other the other Kubrick masterpieces. All have. I mean, it's one of those things about like I love Kubrick. I love him, and kind of a dirty secret of Kubrick movies is uh, a lot of them are kind of slow. That, <laughs> like even the best ones, you know. Like, like I remember talking with friends about like Oh, well, two thousand one. What's it like? It's like it's great. It's monumental. It is long, right? <laughs> and and uh, and The Shining to me doesn't have a lot of fat on it, and uh, it's yeah, it's just. Kubrick at his most streamlined, and yeah, it's—I don't know—it's—it's—it's it's it's the scariest movie I've ever seen. It's great, Kubrick, as we've discussed. That most, almost all Kubrick movies have a touch of horror in them, and so The Shining <laughs> is the one that just commits <sighs> to like the whole movie's a horror <laughs> movie. Right, right. It's all in on the horror. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I... Uh, yeah, The Shining. <laughs> the Shining.
0: I mean, what can you say? It's such a. It is a fantastic film. I'm so so glad you talked about it. And and you know, '80s '80s was kind of a minimal uh, decade for Kubrick. He uh, he only made like what two films. Two. In the yeah, 80s? It just
1: didn't work a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and sort of slowing down, and then you know, and then only one in the '90s, uh, but. um but the shining it just keeps growing in as in estimation doesn't it like people seem to love that film more and more i remember when the shining came out and i remember people talking about it as a lesser kubrick you know there was a definitive like oh you know he's working from stephen king you know that
1: yeah the idea was he was slumming a hack yeah and uh and
0: it's a horror film, which is a genre that's somehow regarded as lesser than other genres. And uh, on top of that, I, th- I thought it was financially fairly successful, which is also unusual for Kubrick's uh, in, in, in comparison to his previous couple of films, which was Barry Lyndon and uh, uh, Clockwork Orange. Both of them were not gigantic financial successes. Uh, t- uh, 2001 was, of course, very successful. But uh, but those two seem like he was slipping uh, as a commercial director. So, here comes The Shining. It does pretty well at the box office. People love it. People are scared of it. Stephen King hated it. Right? Yeah. Famously still hates it. Uh, but... Who gives a shit about what Stephen King thinks, right? <laughs> it's a great film. It's friggin', it is, you're absolutely right. It's so, it's, it's frightening. It has great acting. Nicholson is iconic in it. Shelley Duvall is fantastic. Friggin' yeah. Scatman Crothers is killer in the movie. I mean, the, the movie's just, it's just awesome and it's, it has so many outstanding sequences and moments. And, and it's, talk, talk about a great, like, uh, quarantine film too, right? I
1: mean Yeah, yeah. That's uh I had a joke I actually got at a convention, I got a keychain for the Overlook Hotel. And uh I, I think I had a joke earlier this year about uh yeah I'm all set for quarantine, I'm gonna hole up with the family. Get a little <laughs> writing done. Um if nobody's seen it, there's a great making of little documentary on the shining that Kubrick's daughter shot and uh for years like bef- while he was still alive, he wouldn't allow it to be released because I mean the rumors that he was upset because he comes off as such an asshole in the documentary, <laughs> and you know like you get to see him kind of berating Shelley Duvall and things like that. Right, and, right, uh, right. So I, I once you know in college I saw like a heavily bootlegged version of it, but then later on after uh, Kubrick passed, it was included as like a bonus feature on. The Shining DVD, and uh, it's a fascinating look. And there's a bit in that DVD that has stayed with me, like, in all my filmmaking endeavors that I think about, was, you know, they're interviewing Nicholson, and he said that prior to working with Kubrick, you know, every director he worked with in the 70s was obsessed with, like, realism in performance, like, constantly trying to, like, strip away actorly things and be like, you know, Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? And then he said he, he meets Kubrick and he would do something, you know, on, on, as a take. And Kubrick would be like, Yeah, it's real, but it's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it kind of uh, made Nicholson reevaluate a lot of stuff. So, I mean, for good or ill, if you think that uh, in, in his later years, Nicholson became a little hammy and over the top, maybe you can blame. Stanley Kubrick.
0: <laughs> blame or, Kubrick. Uh, you know, yeah. people blame Kubrick for other stuff. I mean I, I think Shelley Duvall pretty much blames him for her complete psychological collapse that that happened in the subsequent years. Well a little her movie career, a little uh career a little movie collapse slash
1: Movie slash music trivia: As uh, Shelley Duvall was dating Paul Simon, who apparently dumped her at the airport as she was flying off to London to shoot The Shining. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a so going a harsh in
0: one. going in she had some uh, some bad things happening. The, yeah, she 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 did not come out well of The Shining, uh, unlike Nicholson, of course. But yeah. I know what you're saying. Like Nicholson, prior to that film, Nicholson was already kind of starting to play around with the. Old, you know, the, the, the over the top persona that, uh, that we so closely associate with his uh, acting style. But, um, you know, he can, he can go in any direction. He's, he's so modulated in his, in, in his acting that, you know, he could be big, he could be small, he can do just about anything within, you know, the confines of, his body, which is all we can ask from an actor. But um, Stephen King had a big issue with Jack Nicholson's casting because Stephen King identified Nicholson with a film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in which he played a mental patient uh, and um, thought that having a person so closely identified with mental illness uh, does a disservice to the character in the shining because that character is supposed to go from total normalcy to a complete mental collapse where he becomes an axe wielding murderer and that's that was a huge issue with Stephen King and if you actually watch the performance it's it's a it's a very very I don't know about subtle maybe, but it's a very, very clean line from the sane Jack Nicholson to the insane Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining. And I think Nicholson does a fantastic job. And uh, and again, I, I think Stephen King is completely wrong about his perspective on this film. Uh, it's great. It works.
1: Yeah. And well, I mean, to me, the, the idea of the, the kind of lurking menace in Nicholson's performance is like, half the scariness in it. And, you know, I I guess I can sympathize with the fact that Stephen King wrote this book. You know, he had a very clear vision of that character in his head when he wrote the novel. And the character in the movie is a guy, you know, who had a... he had There was an incident where he hurt his son, he claims accidentally, when he was drunk. But just the idea that the menace was already... is always there. So to me, the breakdown of Jack Torrance and The Shining is... I mean, there's the supernatural element, but it's more like what's terrifying is how close the father figure is to murderous madness. It's just you know, it doesn't take all that much of a push, <laughs> and uh, there you go.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that works. Uh, that works really well, and and again, like everything works very well. Kubrick was definitely a master of the craft of the cinema. He uh, he was. So skilled at his ability to express mood. Uh, and um, his films also have this dark humor in them that I think a lot of people don't really attune themselves to enough. Um, there's always a humorous element to his films. And um, uh, I tell you, Shining is a prime example of this. It's interesting because, you know, Kubrick's other films. That decade, uh, full metal jacket, was also kind of um, out just out of my top ten. And uh, I talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, to me, it got a little bit canceled out by platoon. I, I I am always of different minds about those two films as to which one is greater. Uh, and they canceled one another out. Uh, and they are not on the top 10 for me but both fantastic films but you like The Shining more than you like Full Metal Jacket clearly
1: yes but yeah. I mean again like yeah
0: <laughs> I know we're only no coming here, up yeah, to the top yeah, 3 yeah. and I don't know if you may have snuck Full Metal Jacket in your top 3 but uh, but The Shining definitely, definitely the greatest horror film of the 80's for sure easily right
1: uh, well, I guess it's my pick as of where it is, but there are some other great ones. I mean, you know, as we discussed in our horror episode, there's The Fly, there's The Thing. I mean, there's yes. some great uh,
0: horror there movies. There's some great but, ones, yeah. and yet The Shining comes out on top.
1: All right. What do you got at uh,
0: number three? Well, here we are, the top three, and uh, my third favorite film of the 1980s is called Raiders of the Lost Ark. At least it used to be called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now it's called <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. A terrible name. But um, when it came out in 1981, it was called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I-, I tell you, again, formative film for me. I have never, never been this surprised by a cinematic experience. Um just as a near kind of kind of a young immigrant child, only having been in the U.S. for a couple of years, uh, it was a stunning cinematic experience. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I knew Steven Spielberg was a fine filmmaker. I've seen other blockbusters. I've seen Jaws and I've seen, uh, uh, well, Star Wars that, of course, uh The other creator behind uh, Indiana Jones, uh, George Lucas, was responsible for. So I was not a stranger to big blockbuster films. But, man, Raiders just blew me away. The pacing of the film, the the action sequences, the storyline, the character himself, the supporting cast. It was just like a perfect film. I was literally just in heaven, sitting there for two hours with my jaw on the floor, literally constantly being delighted by the movie that continually surprised and amazed me on on virtually every level. It absolutely changed the way I looked at cinema from that point on. And uh, it's just, to this day, I think just one of the greatest cinematic experiences I've ever had. And that little thing that I was saying um, about Spinal Tap, about being influential, it is my opinion that Raiders of the Lost Ark changed the way action cinema was made. I think you could look at the action cinema as action films before Raiders of the Lost Ark and action films after. After Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, and this is really for better or for worse, but the primary thing is the editing. Uh, how Raiders of the Lost Ark is cut together, both in terms of its action scenes, but it's also non-action scenes. It it is a faster film. It upped the pacing of all movies, and. Um, that I think makes it very, very special. Not all movies handle the faster pacing as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, but well, I mean, what can you say about it? Everybody's seen it. Everybody knows the tune.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it, it was a it was a runner up on my list. Yeah, it's a great film, and I, it's kind of it's interesting you say that about the the action and how it changed. Because to me, like one of the things Raiders really did that certainly almost everybody did afterwards is Raiders has. It doesn't have, like, two set pieces. It has, like, 15 set pieces, you know? Like exactly, it's like, exactly. Like, set, set piece after set piece after set piece. But then they all kind of flow organically. Like, you know, you yeah. can have, like, the fight in the market that, like, transitions seamlessly into the motorcycle chasing the truck. You know, that it's right. – uh, and – you know, a lot of action movies since then, they're like, okay, we got to have, you know, we got to have a big action moment every like 10 minutes or something. But then so many of the action movies, what feels bad about them is it feels like nothing connects them. You know, it's just like, okay, now there's this fight, then there's that fight. And uh, Raiders all flows great. And um, it also just all sorts of things we take for granted, like the the flying across with the map <laughs> you know, like, right. like that worked great. And uh, I also always give a, a heads up to Raiders. If you really think about it, if you try to explain the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's actually kind of complicated. And yet the movie doesn't feel hard to understand at all. Like you can go around with like, OK, well, you know, that's the symbol that they need to find the spot where they have to dig. And like they just do a great job of making all the exposition stuff both easy to understand and fun.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a MacGuffin yeah, no. hunt, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're just hunting for a MacGuffin. It, it happens to be the Lost Ark, but it could have been anything. And in later films, it kind of does become almost anything. Yeah. But uh, um, but it's just the way it's handled is so well. And exactly. I mean, you're completely right. It's just the action is so organic and it just constantly tops itself, you know, <laughs> just when you think it can't get any more exciting it manages to get more exciting and you never really have a moment to hold your breath it's just or to catch your breath it's just it just keeps getting better and better and better and more delightful the script is great uh the performances are all great Harrison yeah i mean
1: Ward. we we mentioned Shelley Duvall in the shining but uh talk about actresses of the 80s who maybe had a uh a weaker career than you would have guessed. I mean, Karen Allen is so great in that movie. I absolutely. mean, like just just everything you want. Like she's tough, she's funny, she's gorgeous, she's charming. Like just nails it.
0: Yeah, she's she's absolutely fantastic in the film. I, I you know I was totally totally in love with Karen Allen, and uh, and it's a shame that her career did not uh, turn out as great as uh, it probably should have. But uh, man, she's got a legacy because she is in Rages of the Lost Ark and she's also in that fourth one too right the
1: well they had to br- they had to on. bring her back because <laughs> like they based, to me that was all about like just throwing in the towel of like acknowledging that the love interest in the latter movies uh couldn't hold a candle to Karen Allen Which says something, considering that the love interest in the second movie uh, turned out to be the director's wife.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, uh,
1: (laughs) not that character, though, Steve. It's
0: it's a completely different person. (laughs) Uh, Kid Capshaw is not the character from the second film. Uh, And I I like the love interest, quote unquote, in uh, – in The Last Crusade, as well, Allison Doody did a fantastic job and was gorgeous, but she was almost a villainess in that film. Yes. Uh, very different from uh, Karen Allen's character. And uh, again, like everybody's great John Reese Davies and Denim Elliott. I mean, it's just. it's just such a wonderful film it's yeah and and it's also kind of a family film even though it's quite violent
1: well Uh, it is but I remember I you know I saw it a lot as a child and then I had kind of a break where I didn't watch it for like a decade and then when you go back and watch it it's uh, the violence a lot of it is like some of the scenes are almost cartoony like you know there's that kind of when he first meets uh, Karen Allen's character there's that big fight in her bar in Tibet, right. I think. And, you know, I mean, that's got, like, literally people getting hit in the head with a frying pan and, like, doing! You know yes. I mean, it's yes. a, There's yes. a, Looney a cartoony fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, not all of it. There's certainly, you know, people get chopped up by uh, airplane blades and shot, yes. and all sorts of things, but... You know, parts of it are slapsticky and almost like a Looney Tunes vibe to it. Yeah, I, I agree. And yet it somehow still gels with the rest of the film. That's the thing. That's the
0: skill which Steven Spielberg brings to the to the table. And, and you know, again, it's so hard to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark because everybody has seen it. Um, and, you know, most people know quite a lot about it, right? We've all probably, everybody has even seen the making of featurettes. You know, that movie is so huge. But but what can you say? If you haven't seen it in a few years, give it a spin. What else you got to do? It's Rage of the Lost Ark. You're going to love it.
1: All right. So uh, my my pick for the third best movie of the 80s, or at least my my third favorite, is uh, Do the Right Thing. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So uh, much more serious, though also some very (laughs) funny bits and do the right thing. I think there's
0: more comedy in do the right thing than there is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but okay.
1: Yeah, that's a good argument, yeah. So uh, Spike Lee's do the right thing. It remains my vote for the best movie Spike Lee has ever made. Um, Also a great – both a movie that holds up but also like an awesome time capsule movie. I mean that movie takes place – in 1989, and that's it. The fashions are 1989. Uh, everything about it. The music, very famously, starts off with a uh, Public Enemies "Great Fight the Power" song, where they literally say it's 1989. Um, but yeah, "Do the Right Thing" features a lot of the stuff Spike does, but just it's his best version of them. Um, <laughs> that movie. That movie also, um, really at the. It's got to be considered one of the hottest movies in terms of, like, you really do feel like you're in a scorching summer in that movie. Like, he just captures a hot summer day fantastically. But, uh, yeah, I've always loved Do the Right Thing. You know, it's uh, controversial at the day. Uh, Spike purposely gave it an ending that uh, didn't completely lay everything out for you.
0: Right, um, was not super satisfying for anybody, but you know, but but he was trying to, I guess, to represent the reality that uh, that he sees, you know, that does not have uh, uh, satisfying uh, conclusions a lot of the time, right?
1: Yeah, and a, a fantastic cast too. I mean, like also Spike Lee gives his probably best performance in that yeah, movie. He's really yeah. Good. And Spike's not, nor you know, he's he's in a lot of his movies. That's one of the few where he's kind of like the main character, but is also it's a it's one of those leading roles where he's the main character, but the you know a lot of the the bigger action and more colorful characters are all happening all around him. But you know, Danny Aiello, I think, was nominated for that movie. He's great. John Turturro is his son, fantastic. Um, I'm very, I think his name is Bill, not Bill Dukes, but uh. I'm gonna blank all the names. The guy who played Radio Rahim was awesome. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, way before Breaking Bad, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I I knew and great. loved him from various Spike Lee movies, and when he had his kind of moment in uh, Breaking Bad, and people mentioned him, like, oh yeah, that's uh, that's bugging out.
0: That's <laughs> right, uh, man. I, I he's my favorite character in that in that film, and uh, there's just a lot of very memorable characters in that movie, right? I mean, it's it's so it, like to me, it pops for the characters because. It's weird, you know? It's just like you just stick in your mind like real people do, you know? Yeah. And that's that's uh, that's always a sign of a good movie when you start going, like, hey, is that somebody I knew or or is that a character in a movie? <laughs> and,
1: yeah, and, uh, and, like, your mileage may vary on this, but there are certainly some characters in that movie who are a little broader and are kind of the... Oh, for uh, sure, yeah. but, but there's also, like, all the main characters, you get a kind of a nuanced version of them, you know, like, like, like Sal, the pizzeria owner, like there's elements of what he says that come off as clearly racist, but he's not presented as just a one dimensional caricature like a villain or something
0: yeah yeah they're all nuanced characters and uh, you know and and likewise the characters that are fighting the power quote unquote aren't necessarily presented as angels either right uh, so yeah it's a nuanced character study on of many characters and sort of a, a time capsule of its of its day, uh, it's yeah, it's it's a great film, and uh, you, you know I'm not the Spike Lee fan that you are, but uh, but you gotta you gotta admit that one that one stands out. Do the right thing, uh, an excellent, excellent, and unforgettable film. Yeah, good one, buddy. Good one. Surprised. I'm just scared that we're going to name the same movies at the end, and there's not going to be any drama, and the whole artistic angle we go for with our podcast is going to collapse. But
1: I I, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty I, good that my number one is not your number one, and I guarantee you that my number two pick is
0: probably not on your list. That film is Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff from 1983. I don't know how many films it's influenced. It's one of those biopics made about people who were, for the most part, still alive when it was made. Some of the people the movie's about are actually in the film. You know the term, the great American novel? Well, I think there's also such a thing as a great American movie. And to me, that movie is the right stuff. Um, This is Philip Kaufman's film version of Tom Wolfe's novel, The Right Stuff, about the original Mercury 7 astronauts, the first Americans who went out into space. Uh, And if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is super friggin' entertaining. Even though it's quite long, uh, it moves along at a lightning pace. It's got fantastic special effects. I mean, it looks fucking real. I mean, I, I just watched it on a big TV in 4K, and it's it's seamless the the effects are absolutely great and it has a fantastic cast of actors who went on to be bigger stars afterwards and who are all kind of known known american actors but it's their combination it's the togetherness of these guys having all of them in one film that really makes it special the movie stars the great late great uh, Sam Shepard as the late great Chuck Yeager, who just passed away a few months ago. Scott Glenn plays Alan Shepard. Ed Harris plays John Glenn, also the late great. Uh, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward, Barbara Hershey, Veronica Cartwright, Lance Hendrickson, and it was also great to see some of the supporting cast. Uh, Harry Shearer is great in it. Jeff Goldblum is great in it. Those two guys are kind of a comedy team in the film, and it's and they're, they're there throughout, and it's it's super fun to see them. It's um, what can I say? It's just, it, the cast is fantastic, but how the cast interacts in that film is really, really special. I would say the movie does mythologize all these guys, maybe a little more than they needed to be mythologized. I mean, I think it's not a what you call a warts and all retrospective of what was going on, but it is so good at showing what an incredible scientific feat the human race accomplished by putting men into space. I mean the fact that we were able to put men into space is 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 just amazing Steve it, we, we should all be in awe of it to this day and the movie's great about showing that and and the movie also has a fantastic kind of structure it's 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 not built like you think it would be built it feels at the beginning it really is straight up a. it feels like a western it takes place in new mexico and uh it kind of deals with their these characters as kind of like cowboys the way like the magnificent seven deals with its characters the way the team is put together um it's totally great. I don't know when was the last time you've seen it, but uh, check it out. It's friggin' delightful, and it's a great movie for kids of a certain age to see because, unlike virtually every other science fiction and fantasy film you'll see, this one was real.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I it's been a little bit. I've actually been thinking about uh, showing that to my son. Uh, we're. We're big into space stuff here, and uh, that is great. Like I say, and when you mentioned uh, the Western style, the, my memory of it is that it almost feels like there's the Chuck Yeager half and then the astronaut half of well, the, uh, the movie. That's right. And there, that's, there's parallel action. Reasons. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember as a kid, I learned a lot about the space program, and it was how, like, it. there were all these guys who were trying to break the speed of sound, even just on Earth. And then right. how well, that that's kind how of starts. like, well, that's how it started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it segued into uh, the space race. And it's a part of American history that everybody should be proud of. And it, it really, to this day, is just amazing. Like you say, a bunch of guys did some math calculations and uh, basically slung a tin can into the sky. <laughs> right, and, right. Some, and had and, it uh, orbit
0: the Earth and yeah. brought people back safely, and 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 again, you know, the Soviets did it first, and this film takes nothing away from the accomplishment of the Soviets, except with the Soviets, we have no idea how many cosmonauts died before they were able to actually bring one back, but. It was just an amazing accomplishment. And it was not heavily supported by the government. Like, it's weird. Like, you learn all these things about what was going on behind the scenes. It was like, you know, it had to be kind of sold to Kennedy. We think of Kennedy as somebody who, uh, you know, who was all on board for putting the man on the moon. But that's not what the reality was. He was really curious about
1: it. I mean, the, the movie does a little bit of this, but how, like, yeah, the interest kind of waxed and waned depending on who the president was and how Eisenhower, like, really pushed for it. But then other guys yeah. wouldn't. And it, it's – I will say, uh, Johnson, that movie paints him as not much more than a clown and – uh <laughs> As a child, that was my first encounter with Lyndon Johnson. Well, it was like through that movie. Right. So then it was kind of interesting to like grow up and learn about the other facets of Lyndon Johnson's life. Because right. if you watch the right stuff, Lyndon Johnson is just this comical guy trying to cre- take credit for the astronauts who the astronauts basically tell to buzz off at various points in the movie. <laughs> yes, it, um,
0: it does not, does not do, uh, do justice to Lyndon Johnson, for sure. You know, and, and again, I'm not sure to degree to which it accurately portrays the other astronauts either again it's still kind of mythologized these guys for sure Oh yeah there,
1: there's some myth building going on but uh yeah. but it's yeah. it's certainly entertaining
0: oh it's it's amazingly entertaining steve I, I i again i i watched it recently and i was absolutely blown away by the quality of that film it's the great american film and uh it's my number two
1: all right Well, my number two, it's a mixture of Influential, My Childhood, the 80s, all of it, and it's The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, Um, my God. (laughs) I mean, it's super, couldn't be more obvious, but if I'm honest with myself about my favorite movies of the 80s, it's got to be on the list, and, uh, you know, I had... Talk about a movie everyone's seen. (laughs) But I will say, I was thinking about, like, what is so great about The Empire Strikes Back. And, I mean, in a weird way, what we were just talking about with Spike Lee, it's like, if anyone has ever liked Star Wars, or if there is ever anything about Star Wars that is cool, it's like, The Empire Strikes Back is the apex of that. Like, it is, like... Any coolness associated with Darth Vader, I think, is from that movie. And uh, it's just, it's got the best set pieces. It's got the best visual look. uh, It's got the best directed acting of any of those movies. Got the best screenplay. Yeah. And it's just kind of the height of all the things. And, you know, if you're one of the few people who's never seen it, I don't know. <laughs> you probably haven't seen it for a reason. And uh, <laughs> and if you hate Star Wars, it's one of those, I don't know if that will change your mind, but it's just, it is the height of all. It's Harrison Ford, at kind of his apex coolness. And that's my biggest thing about that movie. For a movie that came out in 1980, it's still cool. Like, just the look of it, something about it is cool.
0: For sure, for sure. It's... I mean it's amazing looking right? Yeah. I mean it's gorgeous. Uh and and that's not to say that the subsequent uh, Star Wars films are not gorgeous. That's not the problem with the subsequent Star Wars yeah, films yeah, yeah. as it so happens. But uh, but yeah Empire. And again like for me like it came out. Empire came out in 80, right? Yes. And uh you know for me it was one of those Formative cinematic experiences as well. I I had seen the re-release of Episode Four, what was at that time called Star Wars, yeah. uh, and um, that was actually the first film I saw in the theater in the United States. Steve, how about that? That's how yeah. about that introduction to film going experience. But I I had a lot of expectation for that film. I didn't fully understand what any of that was about. I'm not going to kid (laughs) you. But I remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back when it came out in a packed theater. I remember sitting in the front row, which I rarely did, uh, and just being blown away. I mean, the snow walkers, all the space stuff, the giant space lizard that almost eats the ship. And the drama with Luke training under yoda and then confronting darth vader and then the big reveal and then an ending that was kind of like what this is it uh it's
1: a dark ending
0: very dark ending but hopeful at the same time not uh um not hopeless and 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 again uh, cliffhanger was a little bit hard to swallow uh, I remember as a kid, I wanted an end, but um, but it certainly created a lot of excitement for the next film, Yeah, uh, and um, I don't know, it's just, it, like, all the pieces really came together uh, perfectly here, you know? Like well, all- and just
1: a real quick shout out, I know, like, we've all lived with Yoda as a character in the consciousness for decades at this point, but really... That's got to be near the top of the list of all-time things that a roll of the dice and could have gone really, really badly. <laughs> I mean, the idea that, like, they're like, okay, so you've kind of heard about this, you know, somebody's going to train Luke. There's some Jedi master hidden away. He has to go find the mystical samurai master to teach him. And they decide to make that character like a mystical literal Muppet a muppet uh, yep. it's a muppet <laughs> voiced by the guy who voiced bert and miss piggy yeah you know yeah. and uh and a credit i mean to everybody involved in that that yeah. they pulled it off yeah, br- pulled it
0: off brilliantly. He's an indelible character. He he may be the one of the deeper <laughs> characters in all of Star Wars, if you think about it. For a puppet, that's pretty amazing, right? And, and he's funny. I, he's fun- <laughs> yeah, yeah. the humor works. I mean, he's got a personality. It's amazing. And th- this was literally a hand puppet. Uh, just I, yeah, th- that that is stunning. You th- that's a great point. I read a recent interview with Frank Oz where he apparently had to scold some of the other cast and crew members to stop making fun of yoda while he was doing it uh because it was throwing him off it was um making it seem too uh ridiculous for him to pull off that performance and um you know the director obviously backed him up and and you know, people stop making fun of Yoda on set, uh, and uh, well, the result is uh, an incredible, an incredible, unforgettable character in an amazing film. Man, it's a, it's a, it's it's a fantastic movie. It's definitely the pinnacle of the Star Wars series without any doubt. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. Uh, it's an improvement over the first film. and Yeah, it's I mean, it's like a short list for one of the best sequels of all time, too. For sure. And it hasn't really been duplicated. Like, Star Wars never duplicated the quality of that film. And uh, it must have drove George Lucas crazy that uh, the one, you know, the, the when he did not direct the Star Wars film, that's the one that everybody thinks is the best. I yeah. almost feel bad for old George, but, you know. He can cry into his crying his
1: millions, yeah. yeah, giant
0: golden handkerchief that he carries in his pocket. Uh, but uh, we're coming to number one, right? Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, for me, another absolutely formative cinema-going experience that also happens to be possibly the most influential film of the '80s, and that is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Um, you know, I love Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Changed the way I viewed film. Uh, There were several films, including some of the ones I just mentioned, and including Empire Strikes Back. But for me, Blade Runner was the big lightning bolt, the one that made me really think to look at cinema as an intellectual art form rather than just a series of uh, action set pieces that I had wanted to consume. Prior to seeing Blade Runner What hasn't been said about Blade Runner Up to this point, I don't know if there's anything I have to say that hasn't been said Before, but it is a beautiful Film, it is a deep uh, Philosophical film It has fantastic performances By, again Harrison Ford uh, Chicago's own, or at least Deerfield's own, or whatever Uh, (laughs) And, uh He's just great. He, he really, he gives a deep performance that up to that point has not been hinted in his other roles, uh, even though he was already a very huge movie star, uh, but uh, the character he plays is not particularly lovable. Uh, and the story Blade Runner tells is not uh, particularly commercial. Uh, Blade Runner was not a successful Blockbuster that they expected it to be. Uh, and uh, since then, of course, it's gained enormously in stature. It's, uh, it's been acknowledged as a masterpiece. Its uh, art direction has been imitated a million times. Its musical score has been imitated a million times times um, and it, as it turns out it's kind of narrative uh, has been imitated and is being imitated right now on probably three or four different uh, television series one of them happens to be a Ridley Scott one uh, called Raised by Wolves kind of deals with some of the same concepts that Blade Runner deals with there was a sequel that Denis Villeneuve did a few years ago uh, called Blade Runner 2049 it is a very very good sequel, yeah. But it it does not live up to the original. I'm sorry to say it's uh, it's very solid and very beautiful and very intelligent. But it is not Blade Runner. And uh, well, I mean, it is Blade Runner. But it's
1: so not. Andre, this is the uh, the second film on your top five here that has multiple versions of it. So uh, I'm sure you've answered this before. But what what is your favorite version of Blade Runner? Because there's a couple of them out there that's a, that's a very
0: good question. Originally the film at the insistence of the studio was released with a Harrison Ford voiceover. Um, and honestly, that voiceover made sense thematically because the movie is very beholden to classic film noir. And a lot of those films, a lot of those, especially the detective ones had the main character narrating the story, kind of explaining what was going on in a very deadpan fashion. And, um, That was the original release, then Ridley Scott recut it a couple of times, added some things, uh, said some things that he probably shouldn't have said, uh, took out the voiceover and uh, released like the ultimate cut that had uh, no voiceover. The movie just plays out. I don't know. I mean, I have a sentimental attachment to the original theatrical release of that film with the voiceover that I thought was perfectly fine and did not particularly need any improvement. Uh, but, um, the one without the voiceover is also perfectly fine. There's also one that has footage of the unicorn running around through dreams. Um, and, um, I really don't need to see that unicorn. That's (laughs) from another movie. Um, the original theatrical release is also connected to one of your top 5 films uh which is to say Stanley Kubrick let Ridley Scott use uh some of the aerial shots from The Shining uh to um create kind of a I don't know a somewhat questionable happy quote unquote ending to the film Blade Runner um that is the original ending in the original release. I think it works pretty well. I think I like that footage at the end of the film, even though it wasn't intended to be there. But uh, I don't know. Am I dodging your question, Steve? I don't know what to say. I mean, I suppose I <laughs> I I suppose I like the original theatrical release. There, I'll just stick with that. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, another man, Harrison Ford, uh, heavily represented here in our various yeah. top fives.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And deservedly so. I mean, he was the male movie star of the early 80s, easily. No no question about it. Just made the best films and uh, was just, just a unique and uh, really great leading man.
1: Kind of knew as we narrowed down your list that maybe that would be your number one, just knowing I know how much you love that movie and had it hadn't appeared earlier. <laughs> so, I kind of figured maybe we're getting there. Uh, so, I thought about this and kind of going with what you're saying about the movie that, to me, you know, I, I guess I can't say it's not the movie I rewatched the most, but the movie that just stood out to me is the most unique movie that really altered my perception of movie going. Um, for my pick for the best movie of the 80s is I'm going with Blue Velvet. Holy shit, Steve. Going yeah. the alternative route. I am. Uh, yeah, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Uh, we discussed this somewhat on our uh, American Independent episode, but uh, I had a unique viewing experience of Blue Velvet that I had never seen a David Lynch movie, and I was in college in the 90s, and uh, Lost Highway was coming out. And kind of coordinating with that one of the local movies was going to show blue velvet at midnight and so i went and saw lost highway at like you know like a seven o'clock showing or something took a break and then we went back it's all blue velvet for the midnight screening and so i got a double dose of david lynch uh in one day so i don't know how much that affected my perception (laughs) of blue velvet but it's one of those things where lost highway is so much less narrative and odder, that then when I saw Blue Velvet, it was like, oh, like it was uh, compared to Lost Highway, kind of easily digestible. Yeah, um, it's got a story, a mystery of the center. Yeah. There. But still, you know, some of those trademarks. And I mean, Blue Velvet to me is also just the ultimate of, uh, you know, things in the suburbs aren't quite what they seem. But yeah, it's uh, it's hard to distill all the mysteries of Blue Velvet into one thing. I mean, I will say if you've never seen a David Lynch movie, uh it's the the easiest to tolerate but still has some you know, it it's not a normal thing. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> um it's also a great movie in implicating the viewer in whatever is twisted about it. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. you know, most famously in the part when uh Frank Booth turns and looks at the camera and says, "You're like me." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace, had a he had a whole great essay on David Lynch once, and he said that when he saw that, you know, it kind of shook him up for <laughs> like a week <laughs> afterwards. Um, but yeah, Blue Velvet to me is just. It's its own unique thing. It's a great cinematic achievement. Uh, it's one of the awesome stories of uh, an independent artist taking his chance, getting some money, and just running with it, making the most of an opportunity. You know, as a real brief, the story again, that he did Dune for Dino De Laurentiis, and then he had a two-picture deal, and the deal was for the second movie. He could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> and there it is. He made Blue Velvet. Uh, we have Dune
0: movie- to thank for Blue Velvet, then.
1: Yeah. Uh, The second of uh, David Lynch's long-running collaborations with Kyle MacLachlan. And uh, also very funny in parts. (laughs) Yeah, very funny. (laughs) Like
0: all of Lynch's stuff, there's definitely a dark humor under the dark undercurrent, uh, you know, that's under another layer of uh, irony and sarcasm and uh, just Uh, (laughs) smart-aleckiness.
1: David Lynch is also – he's – He's not. I don't know if I describe him similar to Kubrick in their styles. Like David Lynch is a much more romantic uh, mm-hmm. than uh, Kubrick, and but both of them they are similar in that every David Lynch project seems like it's at least twenty five percent a horror film, and that for a guy who's not considered one of our premier horror directors, some of the scariest images I've ever seen are in David Lynch projects. Yeah, I agree with of, you. Yeah, there are things in Twin Peaks, the TV show, I man was on ABC, that just scared the bejesus right, out of me. Right.
0: And the recent return to Twin Peaks has also had some fucking horrifying shit in it too. Yeah, uh, and uh, and all of that exists along the lines of some genuinely funny stuff too. It's it's really quite a quite a trick he pulls off in that film. So what an original movie! I mean, it's just like. Yeah. I honestly, I've never seen anything like Twin Peaks prior to Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, uh, I really haven't. And and uh, and and, uh, and David Lynch is, I mean, he's an artistic hero of mine. And I don't mean to say that I don't think everything he does, I don't like everything he does. I think some of it's pretty terrible, but I really do think he is. I mean, of anybody who seems to put his money where his mouth is in terms of genuinely trying to honor his vision of making something interesting and cool i mean i i feel like you need to root for david lynch even if you hate david lynch movies
0: <laughs> <laughs> i do i mean i yeah. root for him i don't hate david lynch movies uh and i love blue velvet i mean it's it's awesome it's cool looking it's kind of hypnotic um and um, and again, like everything you've said, in many ways, it could be viewed as the ultimate metaphor for the 1980s, uh, and um, and it's a great choice for the best film of the decade. Uh, especially, I just love the idea of having a an independent film in that slot. Uh, so, good job, Steve. Good job. Kudos <laughs> to you, sir, and kudos to David Lynch.
1: All right, well there we have it. We've uh, we have discussed a lot about the movies of the 1980s, Andrew.
0: We have exhausted the 1980s, Steve. I'm I'm exhausted. Are you exhausted? <laughs> oh God, we got to park somewhere, man. Maybe get a soda. But uh, I, you know, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the runners up, and there are just so many great films. I I just can't stress this enough. How many awesome. Favorites
1: from the '80s? Do I have?
0: And I had to. It was kind of painful to leave them off. I mean, I'll go through some of my honorable. Yeah, tell
1: tell me one that like yeah we didn't mention yeah.
0: Well, I mean, just there's it's more than one, but I mean you mentioned it another in another podcast. But uh, James Cameron's Aliens is a fantastic film, and it's a fantastic, exciting action slash. Uh, combat slash horror film. So much going on there. Um, Definitely a post-Raiders film, by the way. Um, But just an absolute perfect example of a brilliant sequel that you mentioned as well with Star Wars. Um, But to me, that movie was... um was somewhat canceled out by another favorite a sentimental favorite, actually and that is uh star trek 2 the wrath of khan yeah. which every time i see it i appreciated more as cinema uh you know there was a time when i'm just like oh it's a star trek movie like a long episode of an old tv show but it's not it's an excellent film it's deep it's got a lot of ideas in it It's got a great cast doing great work. Um, It's directed very well. It's scripted very well. Um, It's just an excellent film. And, um, you know, kind of squeaked by. And um, I already mentioned Terminator, Predator. Those kind of canceled one another out for me a little bit. But... um, I really was tempted to put um, a German film by Wim Wenders called Wings of Desire on the list. I really love, love, love that film. And that is kind of, uh, you know, that is a slow film. It is an art film. It is black and white sometimes, most of the time, Uh, but not always. Uh, And... um, it's, it's hard to describe that movie if you've never seen it, but I really, really recommend it. It's on HBO Max right now, and if you want to put on, like, an artsy European film from the 1980s, Wings of Desire is awesome. You should give it a try. And um, I also want to give big props to Sex, Lies, and Videotape, ah. Steven Soderbergh's first film. And, and we had criminally, Steve, criminally did not mention that film during our independent Cinema
1: podcast. Yes. If anybody's still listening at this point, this is our uh, a good opportunity to apologize because, I and mean, that was frankly dumb of us. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, apart apart so from that, choices. Yeah, yeah. But Sex Lies and Videotape really was, apart from, uh, I mean, I think it's a quality movie anyway, but certainly a historical notable. I mean, that I believe that was the first of the Sundance movies that got bought for like a lot of money. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, it was it was a game changer for uh, independent cinema and brought in a whole slew of independent films in the following decade.
1: Yeah, I uh, mean, it's, I guess we could argue if we ever wind up doing a, a tour through the 90s that uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is almost like it's the first 90s American independent movie, even though it came out in 1989. <laughs> Absolutely. We will definitely talk
0: about that in that, uh, in that future podcast. Uh, but, uh, but I, I really like it. What can I tell you? It's, um, uh, you know, very low budget. It's all about the script and the structure. It stars James Spader and Andy McDowell. Uh, and, um, uh, what can you say? It's it's worth revisiting. And I think uh, Steven Soderbergh is planning to revisit it himself by making a direct sequel to Sex Lies and videotape. Is it going to be Sex Lies and
1: Compressed Digital Media, Steve? Is that what it's going to be called? <laughs> I don't know. There's a whole separate uh, Soderbergh conversation to be had. Uh,
0: <laughs> we'll, um, we'll have it another
1: time. I'm yeah. Sure. But that is yeah, an
0: excellent yeah, film.
1: Yeah. Some of. Uh, a runner-up I wanted to mention that almost made my list is a movie we hadn't talked about, uh, which is Dangerous Liaisons. Yes, and uh, Dangerous Liaisons is it's um, it's a great example of a. Uh, do you ever have something, Andre? Where like you kind of hate most examples of something, but then there's like there's the exception. You know, like, say there's a band that you're like, I don't really like that band, but they made that one album that you're like, I can't deny that's a great album. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and for me, it's the playwright and screenwriter Christopher Hampton. Uh, Christopher Hampton, I felt like, wrote every other period piece in the 90s I saw, and they all drove me crazy. I would go see, I felt like a Christopher Hampton script was uh, notable for being really... uh, all over the place and unfocused and uh, I'd always leave his movies feeling like I, uh, got nothing out of it and drove mm-hmm, me insane. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the one exception is dangerous liaisons. Uh, it was based on a play he wrote and he wrote the screenplay for the movie. Steven Frears directed it, but, uh, it's a great, uh, you know, kind of a twisted version of a love triangle. um, John Malkovich, famously picky, bitchy John Malkovich. It's one of like only three movies that he feels rivals like work he's done on the stage. Mm -hmm, He's uh, mm -hmm. one of the few movies he's proud of. And (laughs) um, I mean, Glenn Close is fantastic in it. And also just Michelle Pfeiffer, between that and Age of Innocence, I could care less if she never made any other movies because she just broke my heart so thoroughly in those two. That yeah, uh, there right. will always be a special place in my heart for Michelle Pfeiffer, based on those two movies. So, uh, "Dangerous Liaisons" is a yeah. It, it didn't really slot into any of the other topics we kind of talked about in this season, but no, uh, no.
0: Maybe, but it's like, a movie. Like we didn't do a historical historical film rundown,
1: or yeah. Something. Or you know, even I don't know, sexy dramas or something. But yes, it's a it's a movie that I've, i I think about all the time. It's a a, a long favorite, long time favorite of mine.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an excellent film, definitely. Uh, I, I kind of want to check it out again. I haven't seen it in many years. It was kind of canceled out at at the time of its release because there was this, there was another film called Velmont, which was based on the same work of literature that Dangerous Liaisons film was based on. Yeah, um, and uh, and I think there was a little bit of a back and forth there. They came out. Like within the same year, but dangerously, Liaisons definitely got more accolades and was probably more successful in the box office, and was actually a better film, frankly. Uh, but um, but yeah, Dangerous Liaisons is great, and Malkovich playing a roguish, handsome seducer really has never been better. Because I mean, it takes a it takes a twisted of kind of mind to cast John Malkovich in a role like that and the fact that it works so remarkably well is uh, is a testament to Stephen Frears and John Malkovich. Um, yeah but uh, that, that movie is uh, is really really cool and uh, and I love it and uh, would make a great double bill with Amadeus. It's sure would. <laughs> well, I guess we're at the end Steve, we're at the end of the 80s. What can I say? I've enjoyed this enormously. Thank you for uh, going for a ride with me and talking about the films of the '80s. And uh, we'll be back with more
1: current cinema, such as it is, soon. I promise. Yeah, we might uh, we might take a little break here, but uh, film-driven, we'll ride again.
0: We will. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andre Shane.
1: I'm Steve Askin.